Good morning and welcome to our service. It's great to have so many of you here with us in our worship area and welcome to those of you joining us online. Want to let you know that we're going to celebrate communion today, the Lord's Supper. So those of you here, welcome to pick up one of these little chalice style cups at our doors if you haven't got one already. Those of you watching from home, uh, you may want to get a piece of bread and some juice or a near substitute and we'll celebrate communion at the end of the message this morning. I want to also let you know, those of you who are members of River Oaks, we're going to have a very brief congregational meeting at the very end of this service and hope you can stay just a few minutes for that. I want to mention a few things coming up this month that we're especially excited about and I want to be sure you know about. The first is something in our community called Christmas for the City. Christmas for the City uh, is sponsored by Love Out Loud, a great ministry that brings together Christians from around the county, and it's a Christmas party for the city. It'll be uh, held on the 18th, Saturday night, uh, from 12 to 6 p.m. You can come and go as you please, and if you'd like to volunteer, we normally have people from our church volunteering as part of this. You see their website there. You can go and sign up. The very next day, Sunday, December the 19th at 4.30 p.m. here in our sanctuary, I want to encourage you to come to our children's Christmas musical. We haven't been able to have one of these for a couple of years, and we're having one this year. The children and uh, teachers are already working with them, uh, training. I think it'll be lots of fun, and uh, please put that on your schedules for the 19th, 4.30 in the afternoon, uh, right here in the sanctuary. And then, on Christmas Eve, we plan to have three services here. The second, the 4.30 will be a live stream, but 3, 4.30, and 7.30. And each service typically a little less than an hour, but I want to let you think about these in advance because Christmas Eve is one of the best times of the year to invite a friend, coworker, family member who does not typically go to church. Great opportunity to invite someone to come with you be a candlelight, traditional style kind of service with Christmas carols. So look forward to all those things this month. Now today, we're continuing our study of Luke chapters 1 and 2 as we focus on the advent of Jesus Christ. The Gospel of Matthew chapters 1 and 2 and the Gospel of Luke chapters 1 and 2 are the passages that give us the most detail about all of the in events surrounding Jesus' coming or His Advent. And this morning I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 56. You'll see them on the screen before you. A little heads up before I read. Mary, of course, the mother of Jesus, in this passage is going to visit Elizabeth. And we've learned in the verses preceding this that Elizabeth was a relative of Mary, though much, much older than she. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. <clears throat> and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from 
the Lord. I don't see the words on the screen, but just listen and I'll continue to read those. Verse 46 of Luke chapter 1, and Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Remarkable account here. Very young Mary. And if, if you're with us last week, you know, I mentioned that Mary in all likelihood was a very young teenager, possibly as young as only 12 years old. In her culture, in her time, young women would typically be betrothed at this age. To be betrothed to someone was to be engaged, but much stronger. It was an actual binding legal contract stronger than engagement in our day. And young Mary was betrothed to Joseph when the angel Gabriel came to her and told her that she would conceive in her womb and bear a child before they were married. Fortunately, Gabriel had also gone to Joseph and given him similar news. Remarkable to me, in this passage we just read, Mary's song of praise, which is typically called the Magnificat, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Remarkable in light of the fact that, number one, Mary's so very young, and what has happened to her would have absolutely turned her world upside down. She's going to be pregnant out of wedlock, a huge scandal in her time. Had the angel not spoken to Joseph to let him know what was happening, surely he couldn't have allowed for this. And certainly her family and friends, relatives to whom an angel had not spoken, would in all likelihood reject her. It would be the end of any dream she had for a beautiful wedding celebration. And yet, despite all this, this very young woman filled with faith says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. How could this young woman respond to such life-changing news with such incredible joy? I'd like to explore that this morning. Mary's joy in God. Mary's joy in God was based, number one, on the presence of the Holy Spirit at work in her. Verse 35 of Luke, just prior to the passage we read today, is where the angel Gabriel <clears throat> answered Mary when she asked, how is this going to happen since I'm a virgin? And the angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. The child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The Holy Spirit will be at work in you. If you read through Luke chapter 1, you will notice that the Holy Spirit has a very, very prominent place here. The Holy Spirit is mentioned throughout Luke chapter 1. 
in verse 15, um, the angel had told Zechariah that the son to be born of his wife, Elizabeth, was going to be filled with the Holy Spirit even while in his mother's womb. In verse 35, as we see on the screen, the Holy Spirit would bring about this miraculous conception in Mary's womb. In verse 41 of the chapter, when Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. Later in the chapter, Zechariah, the husband Elizabeth, is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesies. When the Holy Spirit fills a person, there comes enabling power to do the will of God, to do things that we cannot do in our own mere human strength or ability, and along with it comes joy in doing the will of God. Though there may be challenges, though there may be obstacles, though there may be sacrifices to be made, when the Holy Spirit is filling one, empowering one, there's not only the power to do God's will, there's joy in doing that will, and we see that in Mary's life. Again, think of the challenges for this young betrothed woman, the end of all of her dreams of a big wedding, possible rejection by friends and family, yet filled with the Holy Spirit. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. It's a lesson here for us. And it reminds us what the te scripture teaches elsewhere, that it's the Holy Spirit who gives us power power to witness for Jesus, power to do the will of God, enabling power to obey God. It's the Holy Spirit who brings about the work of God, not only in Mary's life, but in your life and in my life. A week or two ago, I was sitting here in our sanctuary during the week, and um, Sam Walter showed me the video that you just uh, saw on the screen. And as I was sitting back there, um, watching this video for the first time, I was struck with the beauty that went into it. Beauty, as Sue Glad was using her artistic gift to write calligraphy, and reflecting on all the, all the hours of video and editing and the combination of lightings and all the things that go into presenting a 30, 45 sec second segment for worship, and I was struck, well, God is, has given certain people the ability to present beauty in corporate worship. Now, later that week, I was reading just my regular Bible reading. I was reading the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, <clears throat> and I came across these words, <clears throat> excuse me, in Exodus chapter 31. It's where God is giving instruction about the worship of his people people, worship of him. In Exodus 31, verses 1 to 5, read this way. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God. I filled him with the Holy Spirit, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. I filled him with the Holy Spirit to make artistic designs for worship by my people. I filled him with the Holy Spirit to do craftsmanship with wood. I filled him with the Holy Spirit 
to create beauty when my people worship. I don't know about you, but it helped me broaden my understanding of how the Holy Spirit gifts his people to contribute to the work of his body, not only in worship, but in everything we do. You know, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. Every genuine Christian does. The Apostle Paul wrote it, if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to him. The Holy Spirit who brings us to faith, who regenerates us, who dwells within us. But it's possible to be a Christian who has the Holy Spirit, who's not filled with the Holy Spirit. In the passages we've read today, people were filled with the Spirit, empowered, enabled by the Spirit. We're called to be filled with the Spirit. And when we're filled with the Spirit, all that we do can be done for the glory of God. It doesn't have to be work involving a worship service. Apostle Paul said, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. If you treat patients, treat patients for the glory of God. If you teach students, teach students for the glory of God. If you paint houses, paint houses for the glory of God. And the enabling ability for this, for the believer in Jesus Christ, comes by the Holy Spirit. So our call is to be yielded to him, to seek his fullness, to desire his work in us and through us. This work is not always going to be easy. There may be challenges. There may be sacrifices called for. But when we're filled with the Spirit, there's joy in doing the work of God. This was Mary's experience. <clears throat> Mary would have a very challenging life. Eight days after the birth of Christ, they would go to present the baby Jesus in the temple, and a man named Simeon would come, and he would speak prophetically. And he would say, this child is set for the rising and falling of many in Israel. And then look at Mary and say this, and a sword is going to pierce your own soul. I'm sure he said it with sorrow in his voice, because one day Mary would be standing around the cross when her baby boy, now 30 years old, would be nailed there, shedding his blood, dying to pay the penalty of our sins. A sword would indeed pierce her soul. Her life would not be easy. But how blessed she is, how blessed she was. Her joy. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, was based on the power of the Holy Spirit within her. Secondly, her understanding of the greatness of God. Notice in her magnificat what she exclaims or proclaims. For he who's mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Notice the understanding of the nature of God that this very young Jewish woman had. Notice the key words, God's mighty. She knew the might, the omnipotence, the power of God. He's also holy, infinitely, utterly pure and holy without sin. But not only that, he's also merciful. And he shows his mercy to those who fear him, who reverence him from generation to generation. Let me stress this. The view we have of God is critically important. It shapes all of life for us. 
it certainly determines how we see ourselves in relation to God, how we comprehend the greatness of his love for us. Mary had a high view of God, big view of God, and we should as well. Unfortunately, many people have a view of God that's shaped by their circumstances. For some people, particularly those who've had an earthly father who was not particularly good, maybe even caused them pain, can be more difficult to have a, a healthy view of God is a good and perfect, holy and merciful, loving, heavenly father. Others, their view of God is simply shaped by circumstances in life, disappointments or things in life that didn't quite go their way. But Mary's view of God seems not to have been shaped by her circumstances, but her knowledge of his nature and his works. As we read in verses 51 and 52, her knowledge of God in the present was shaped on what she knew of God to have been true in the past. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Now, these words are not direct quotes of Scripture, but they echo themes from the Old Testament, particularly themes found in the book of Psalms and the book of Proverbs. Here's the point. Mary's understanding of who God is was shaped by her knowledge of what Scripture says about God. In all likelihood, as a young Jewish girl in the temple, she heard these passages from the Psalms, from the Proverbs, from the prophets, read over and over. And she understood that God is the one who shows mighty strength with his arm. He is the one who scatters the proud, but he exalts the humble. Mary's view of God was shaped not by our mere circumstances, but by a proper understanding <clears throat> of Scripture. So she has joy when God tells her how her life's going to change. Joy because of the presence of the Holy Spirit at work in her. Joy because she had a high view of God. And then thirdly, her joy in God was based on her gratitude of being included in His plan. Mary's high view of God calls her to just absolutely marvel that he would use her. And she's filled with joy. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. And then notice what she says. How could she have possibly known this? For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. How could she have known that for hundreds and thousands of years, people would consider her most blessed among women? People would study her great magnificat, her song of praise, even as we are today, thousands of years later. Well, obviously, she was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she spoke prophetically, expressing things she could not have known apart from God's guidance. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. Further, Mary knew that what was going to happen in the future was related to things that God had already promised in the past. 
And this was based upon her knowledge of God's promises. Because she continues this way. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. In other words, God somehow dealing mercifully with the people of Israel as he's promised before, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. Mary probably had in mind the great promise, perhaps the greatest promise ever made to Abraham. It's found in the book of Genesis, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And it's there that God promises Abraham descendants, offspring. And God says to him in verse 3 of Genesis chapter 12, that in you, that is through your offspring, all the families, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Mary somehow knows by the power of the Holy Spirit and reflecting on those promises, God's bringing it about now. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul would say that promise, that promise to Abraham, in you, Abraham, all the families or all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The Apostle Paul would say, in giving Abraham that promise, God was preaching to Abraham the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we'll look at that more in just a moment. But for now, let me just reflect back on Mary for a moment. This remarkable young woman. Her joy flowed from a life that was characterized by, by three things in particular. Her humility. Mary's humility flowed from her high view of God. A high view of God, who he is, gives us a humble view of ourselves. Secondly, her life was characterized by faith. The trust that God would do what he'd said. Not only what he said to her, power of the Most High will come upon you. You bear a child who be called the Son of God. But also what he had said to Abraham, the prophets in the Old Testament. And then thirdly, her life was characterized by obedience. When God spoke, she would obey. Joyful submissiveness to his plan. I think Mary's example reminds us that obeying God though it may be accompanied by sacrifice or even suffering, ultimately leads to joy in God. Remember again, Mary, in all likelihood, was very, very young, 12, 13, 14 years old. It's notable to me that in Scripture, God often, in very significant ways, used the very young. David, the shepherd, later the king. Probably just a teenager, very, very young when he killed Goliath. Uh, Daniel, likelihood, very, very young man when he was taken into captivity and the events of Daniel began to take place. Throughout Scripture, we see God using the young. And in the New Testament, we see the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out in the last days on our sons and on our daughters, including the young. I stress that because that's our prayer here in our church for our students, for our children, for the next generation, that God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, will especially work in them, through them. Before we leave this passage and take communion, I think it's worth noting 
that Mary in her Magnificat actually presents the gospel to us. Three things in particular, I think, make that point for us. Number one, Mary presents the fact that God is the Savior. My soul magnifies the Lord, she says, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. When Gabriel, the angel who had come to Mary, also went to her husband Joseph, he said, you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, the Lord saves, or the Lord is salvation. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. Mary knew the salvation being talked about wasn't a military deliverance. It was a salvation from sins. The child she would bear, Jesus, would be her Savior and ours, all who would receive him. Secondly, she points out this truth. All people, all are in need of his mercy. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Mary had noted God is mighty, God is holy, but he is also merciful. That mercy was ultimately to be displayed, of course, in sending Jesus, who would die on a cross and shed his blood to redeem us from our sins, to reconcile us to God. God is the Savior. All need his mercy. And then thirdly, the gospel would be promised as it was to Abraham. God is actually now, Mary proclaims, in what he's doing in bringing the birth of Jesus and bringing him to earth, the son of God, who'd be born as a baby. He's now fulfilling the promise made to Abraham and to his offspring. Well, how do you know that's the gospel, the promise made to Abraham? Let's briefly look at what the New Testament says in the book of Galatians chapter 3. Apostle Paul writes these words. And the scripture, foreseeing, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, and to justify means to provide not only forgiveness, but to be able to consider us made righteous in the eyes of God, would justify not just the Jews, but the Gentiles, which includes most of us here, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and here he quotes from Genesis 12 and verse 3, in you all the nations will be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul continues in verses 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, to those who weren't even Jewish, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. In other words, Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham that through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, the promise of the gospel. And Jesus would bring this about, however, not just by being born, wasn't enough that Jesus just be born and, li- and live a good life and be a great teacher. He was that. But it would require his crucifixion, his being nailed to a tree. Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree, the book of Deuteronomy said. 
So Jesus himself would be hanged on a tree. Jesus said something really interesting to Nicodemus in the Gospel of John chapter 3. He was explaining to Nicodemus why he'd come. He said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now in the Old Testament, Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole so that all the people who had rebelled against God or were being bitten by fiery serpents, all they had to do was look, give a look of faith to that pole and they'd be healed. The serpent represents a curse. Now why in the world would Jesus in any way connect that with his holy, pure, sinless self? It's an indication that on the cross, he who knew no sin, Jesus never sinned. He was the son of God. He was God the son with no sin, perfectly pure, righteous, holy. But he would bear our curse. He would bear our judgment. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Being made a curse for us. He took our place. He bore our judgment so that we might be justified declared just and righteous. And he did that not just by being born, but by dying on a cross where he shed his blood. He gave his body. And today, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember that. We not only remember it, but we proclaim it. And if you've embraced Jesus as your Savior and Lord, I'd invite you to join us in celebrating communion today. If you'd like to participate in all are welcome. You don't have to be a member of our church. It might be your, this might be your first day here. You're welcome, but I do think it's important that you genuinely put your faith in Jesus. Now, those of you who don't have one of the little chalices, you can get those at the door. You'd feel free to step up and grab um, one of those if you need one. But before we take communion, I'd like to briefly read the words written by the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes these words, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So if you choose to take the bread and juice, <clears throat> you're making a proclamation that by faith you have, you have put your trust in Jesus. You've received the benefits of his, his body given on the cross, his blood shed on the cross. He's your redeemer. He's your savior. You've been justified. But it's important to examine ourselves when we take communion because Paul writes, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. This isn't a mere religious ritual that you do because you're in church. It, it means he's my Savior and Lord. And by faith I've received what he's done. I think it also extends to examining ourselves further. If there's some sin we should confess before him. If there's someone we're not forgiving, 
this is a time to examine our hearts and let God lead us to forgive those who have harmed us just as he has forgiven us. Let's take a moment now and examine ourselves as we prepare. Would you join me as we pray? Father, this is a holy thing. And we are certainly unworthy even to partake of it apart from the saving blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has called us his own and redeemed us by his blood. Father, would you speak to any here who may have never put his or her trust fully in you to turn that person's heart today to say, Lord Jesus, I believe, I receive. Make me your own. And now in a moment of silence, let's simply allow the Holy Spirit to search our hearts. Amen.